It was, it was interesting seeing you walk up this morning a little slower than some Sunday mornings, I think, as the heat of Washington begins to settle in us. I know I feel that way. And perhaps it was that slower, hot feeling that had me thinking about doing something a little different this morning than I usually do on this weekend. And so I'm going to share and have already begun sharing some poetry with you this morning and some prose, some words that speak to my experience in the last few months as I have grown into what I would call a really mediocre gardener. In fact, if you look at my lawn right now, you would not say I am even a mediocre gardener. You would say I am a mostly failed gardener the clover having overrun the entire front bed. But it's been an unexpected pleasure to garden, and it's what I do now on most of my days off or when I can steal a few minutes or convince my daughter that what she wants to do is carry her bucket around for me to drop weeds into. At the same time, though, that philosophical, theological piece of my mind never seems to quite turn off. And so I find that I spend my hours gardening thinking about the metaphors behind every weed I pull. And it is your perhaps unlucky, I hope at least somewhat lucky, chance today to hear some of those metaphors, some of what I imagine as I pull those weeds never ending from my garden. And to share some words of others who have pulled weeds or planted bushes before me. A lot of my time, as I imagine for those of you who garden is true as well, a lot of my time is spent digging up weeds. And so that's primarily what I think about. And the trick is I can never quite decide whether I can't stand weeds or whether I really admire them. I've thought about doing platforms before just about weeds, but I'm not sure if I would tell you to get rid of the weeds in your life or to become more like a weed, because the truth is weeds are really tenacious little critters. (laughs) I think about our own lives and personalities digging up the weeds that keep our blossoms from growing. That's some of what we talk about in our spring festival every March or April as we plant our dreams and need to make the ground fertile for those dreams. But then as I dig, I think too about how deep those roots go. I think about the way that the deepness of the root doesn't always have to do with what the plant looks like. You have this little tiny plant that you think you must just be able to pull up with a twist of your wrist and suddenly realize that you need a spade to pull it. And so I wonder about how deep some of our roots go, whether we ought to pull them and dig them up, and when the times are to honor those roots, to recognize that they're there deep in the ground and digging them up or spraying them with Roundup may be, in the end, fruitless endeavor. This past year, we had an acorn extravaganza, I guess. We have a big white oak tree over my house, and there was a bumper crop of acorns this past summer. Did anyone else have a lot of acorns, white oak? 
you know, just my house. That's great. David, thank you. David and Trish as well. Thank you. And so I have been pulling along with weeds oak trees up out of the ground all season, tens of thousands of acorns, literally across my yard, and then thousands of them germinated and rooted. And so I've been pulling up these oak trees, which is an especially strange task, because of course, I love oak trees. I want oak trees in my life. I just don't want 50 oak trees right around my lavender patch. So I think about the ways that things are weeds in our life and not weeds in other places, the way we can have that black and white outlook on the world and then realize that what we see as an impediment is really an oak tree trying to grow somewhere that we think it doesn't belong. And then I wonder sometimes, usually about an hour into weeding when I've done a about 10 square inches of my bed, why we plant flowers anyway? Why do we have this need to shape our environment? Why not let it be a grove of oak trees, may the strongest one win, or a field of clover? There's a human response, I think, that growth in civilization from hunting and gathering to the beginning of farming the idea that we can indeed control our environment, that we can plant and predictably yield, that we can have before us what we need to survive or what sings to our soul. But it's a funny thing, the contradiction between reveling in nature, enjoying and loving being outdoors, even while what we are trying to do is tightly control nature to rebel against it by putting our rose bushes just where we want them and not have those oak trees grow up in front of our house. The first reading I'd like to share with you is from Barbara Kingsolver, the novelist, from her book of essays, Small Wonder. She writes about her cabin in Appalachia, which she purchased from the Smith family. Sometimes I stand on the porch and just stare, transfixed, at a mountainside that offers up more shades of green than a dictionary has words. Where else I step out with a hand trowel to tend the few relics of Mrs. Smith's garden that have survived her, a June apple, a straggling etiolated choir of August lilies nearly shaded out by the encroaching woods, and one heroic wisteria that has climbed hundreds of feet into the trees. I try to imagine the life of this woman who grew corn on a steeper slope than most people would be willing to climb on foot, and who still, at day's end, needed to plant her August lilies. We do have, I think, that need for August lilies, that need for beauty in our lives, and the need, too, to control and to create on the small piece of land or the pot on the balcony, whatever it is that creates the world around us. At the same time, though, at least in my experience, perhaps my experience as a mediocre gardener especially, Gardening really teaches about a loss of control. 
No matter how much fertilizer I give to that one rose bush, no matter how much care I lavish on it, it doesn't take. The rabbits have eaten all of my basil, I noticed yesterday. The birds run off with things, the acorns overtake the lavender. And so we have this paradoxical experience of creating control in our lives, creating our own peace of nature, even as we have to reshape our plans based on the reality that confronts us, even as we realize that nature is, of course, beyond our control, outside our limits, beyond even what perhaps the best gardener could muster. Also from Barbara Kingsolver, this time in an essay she wrote with Stephen Hopp, which speaks about the amazing and unpredictable wildflowers showing in the deserts of New Mexico. Wildflowers are annuals, I learned in this essay, and they appear differently each year, sometimes in riotous color. Where had they all come from, asks the essay about these annual flowers. Had these seeds just been lying around in the dirt for decades? And how was it that at the behest of some higher power than the calendar, all at once there came a crowd? The end of the essay concludes, The scientific term for these remarkable plants, ephemeral annuals, suggests something that's as fragile as a poppy petal, a captive to the calendar. That is our misapprehension, along with our notion of this floral magic show, now you see it, now you don't, as a thing we can predict and possess like a garden. In spite of our determination to contain what we see in neat annual packages, the blazing field of blues and golds is neither a beginning nor an end. It's just a blink or maybe a smile in the long life of a species whose blueprint for perseverance must outdistance all our record books. The flowers will go on mystifying us, answering to a clock that ticks so slowly we won't live long enough to hear it. King Solver taps into there, I think, a piece of gardening, a piece of being in nature that is true for so many of us. The idea of the natural world as beyond our understanding. Annuals returning year after year, paradoxically again. It invites a sense of awe and wonder with the world, I think. Both our attempts to understand and control it and also our willingness at times to let go and realize that flowers may bloom where they will. That sense of awe is so integral, I think, to our understanding of our spiritual lives, finding awe and wonder in the world. And so for many people, and for me certainly, gardening is a kind of spiritual practice. It asks for a mindfulness, a presence, with the weed, with the trowel. And at the same time, too, it gives us an opportunity to accomplish something. It gives us a finished product at the end, which for me, in a career where I don't see a whole lot of finished products but, a whole, but more journeys in process, is appealing. 
Many of us find that, I think, in our lives, in our work, in our families, the continuing, never-ending journey of life. And yet here is a patch of dirt that you can tame, weeds that you can pull out and then have bare ground, a rose bush where there was none. And so I see another contradiction, just as we saw that need for control and the loss of it that gardens bring us, so too is a sense of being grounded in time, of being mindful and aware in the present moment, and a pull toward accomplishment, a pull toward getting something done on that little patch of ground. Even as we do all that, we know that gardens exist only as long as we tend them. That nature is ephemeral, that it leaves in a moment or in the week you are away and come back to find your tomato patch overgrown. And so I share this poem from Robert Frost, Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold her hardest hue to hold, her early leaves a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief, so dawn goes down to day, nothing gold can stay. We have, I think, that sense of a garden that is gone in a moment but that also can continue. A garden that stretches time, that makes an hour go fast and a year go slow. Even knowing that the garden will never stay as we hope it will, still we try. I think about a colleague and dear friend who told me about the fall her husband was dying. The fall he planted bulbs all through their garden, knowing he would not see them in the spring, but planting nonetheless. Joe Eck and Wayne Winteroud speak about that balance between the momentary and the immortal in their book, Our Life in Gardens. In all, we spent a little more than two years in our first garden, What is curious about that time is that it seemed to have been much longer than it actually was in the way that children feel when they are very young and an eternity lies between birthday and birthday. A year was as far into the future as we could possibly see, and yet we gardened as if we would be there forever in an immediate pleasure in the moment that seemed to imply an inexhaustible future. Little of what we did there then remains, though the daffodils must, and that thought is very pleasant to us. There is, I think, in gardening, a sense of our need for immortality in the world, for planting bulbs that we will not see bloom, for tending Mrs. Smith's rose bushes as she planted them, and building the space, planting new rose bushes for the people who will come after us. Even as we are grounded in that particular moment, even as we are present with that one weed, that acorn that has 
put down roots so deep we need to pull it up, so too we know that we are tending something that goes on in some ways past us. There's a groundedness, I think, in that sense that all returns eventually to the earth, the plants, animals, ourselves, and we live in that tension creating something new, even as we know, ultimately, it dies back in the wintertime. And so for me, in the end, that's what it feels like garden brings to me for lessons. That's what I glean from my hours pulling acorn roots and mustard, thistle, weed, really tricky stuff to get out, and my hours fertilizing rose bushes. That sense of contradiction and tension, the weed that is a flower in another place, the oak tree we just don't want to grow close to our house, the daffodils we plant for someone else to see. I close with words from the Ut Indians of North America, a prayer to our world. Earth, teach me stillness as the grasses are stilled with light. Earth, teach me suffering as old stones suffer with memory. Earth, teach me caring as parents who secure their young. Earth, teach me courage as the tree which stands all alone. Earth, teach me limitation as the ant which crawls on the ground. Earth, teach me freedom as the eagle which soars in the sky. Earth, teach me resignation as the leaves which die in the fall. Earth, teach me regeneration as the seed which rises in the spring. Earth, teach me how to forget myself as melted snow forgets its life. Earth, teach me to remember kindness as dry fields weep with rain.